0: Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the use of XR, or extended reality, in adolescent and young adult oncology supportive care with Dr. Asher Marks. Dr. Marks is an associate professor of pediatrics at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology.
1: Asher, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do.
2: Yeah, so I, I came to Yale about 10 years ago, um, and I was initially recruited right at a fellowship to, to run the pediatric neurooncology program, which... Um, you know, is is, is fairly specialized, um, and and at the time there was a real push to really focus on adolescents and young adults with cancer in general. Um, it was a population where when you looked at survival improvements in older populations and in pediatrics, there were, there were real gains in those populations. But when you really specifically looked at adolescents and young adults, those gains weren't being seen. And the question was, you know, what exactly was going on? What did this population need that was significantly different than, than typical populations? And so they asked me to, to not only run the Neuron Program, but also take a look at this adolescent young adult population and and run a program for them. Um, And what became clear very quickly was that beyond the medical needs, there were very significant psychosocial needs. And while we always are looking to you know, find improvements in 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 treatment for cancer. We also view part of our jobs as to support the the patients and the families through through the treatment itself on that psychosocial side. And so one of the first things we did was really focus on that psychosocial component of their care.
1: So that's interesting. I mean certainly we all know that cancer is a devastating diagnosis that can have ramifications beyond the physical. It's interesting I think to me and, and likely to our listeners as well, that the the survival advances, the improvements that we've seen in the adult population and in the young children population um, weren't really being seen in the adolescents. Was it really rooted in the idea of the psychosocial aspects of of their care and not being able to be adherent to treatment that was driving that, do you think? Or, or was that really multifactorial?
2: it's absolutely multivetorial. you know there there are it's, it's become clear now that the, that these populations have their own unique biology in the tumors that we treat. but at the same time when we looked at trial enrollments, th- these populations were not enrolling in trials as often, which means that they weren't getting access to cutting edge care. We weren't making strides in figuring out what treatments were going to be best. And, and so again, taking a step back and saying, why are they not enrolling on trials? And, and, and why are they not as, as you alluded to a little bit, as adherent to their care? Um, from those components, there's that, that, that psychosocial component, right? If, if they, if they are not having their basic needs met. And they're not understanding the importance of enrolling on these trials and we're not doing our job. And and how can we kind of go about um, making sure that they are in a healthy state of mind as they move forward with their treatment?
1: Yeah and we're going to talk a lot about that um in this show but just to kind of lay the groundwork a, a, a little bit more i'm really intrigued with this population i think that many of us know cancers in older adults we talk about breast cancer and lung cancer colon cancer prostate cancer and we you know some of us know a little bit about cancers in the pediatric population often in very young children um Can you talk a little bit more about the cancers that affect this young adult-adolescent population? You mentioned that their biology was somewhat different. Can you kind of expand on that as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting looking at young adolescent, young adult cancers from, from not only a programmatic perspective, But, but the cancers that they do get and where they get treated. So we have colleagues on the adult side and in the GI clinics and the, in the breast cancer clinics that are focused on, on also the adolescent young adult population, but they're treating cancers in these patients that tend to happen more in adults. So um, yes, of course, we can see breast cancers. We can see GI cancers uh, in these populations. We can see sarcomas, which are solid tumors. Being on the pediatric end of the adolescent young adult side, we see more of the leukemias, uh, lymphomas, Um, brain tumors, um, and, and again, those, those solid tumors or sarcomas, we see those as well. So it it runs a wide gambit, but you know, I think some very kind of specific, um, Uh, examples, you know, with this population is, I think one, you know, a a great example of the leukemia uh, uh, patients in this population. Um, The leukemias tend to be more aggressive. They tend to be more difficult uh, to treat, quite frankly, not only because of the aggressiveness of the leukemia, but because older um, adolescents, older Kids, older adults don't tolerate chemotherapy as well as young kids. So when we give young kids chemotherapy, we can actually give them much larger doses than an adult can tolerate. When you're, you know, taking into account body size. Um, you know, and then on the on the brain tumor side, you know, I, I think that a lot of the uh, brain tumors that we see in this older population, they do tend to be more high grade. They do do tend to have less known, you know, driving molecular mechanisms uh, that we can target. Um, so so there's a, a large array of different tumors that we see in this population, but but they just seem to be a little bit different than than we see in the pediatric and, and older adult population, and we don't frankly understand them as well and this again goes back to the concept that these patients are not always enrolling on trials and so we just don't have the the samples and 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 the the uh, trial size to, to really get that information
1: yeah you know it, it, it's interesting when you talk about leukemias because I, I think so often on this show we've talked about leukemias and the fact that in young children, we actually do remarkably well in the treatment of these leukemias. Why is it that older kids in that adolescent, uh, young adult kind of population don't tolerate chemotherapy as much? Is it is it more the biologic part where, you know, there's something, you know, ingrained in them that they, they just physically can't tolerate it? Or is... Does it go back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of the, the psychosocial aspects and, and simply not wanting to be adherent um, to medications? Talk a little bit more about why that is, because one would think that leukemia is one of the success stories in cancer, I always thought.
2: Absolutely, yeah, and and again, it's it's multifactorial. Again, I think that you know we do know that some of the biology is more aggressive, but but even looking beyond that, the concept of doses of, of chemotherapy that the population can tolerate. You know, kids are resilient. Quite frankly, it's it's one of the things that that brought me to kind of the the pediatric side. Being a pediatric oncologist at heart brought me to the pediatric side of, of cancers. These kids just. Um, Psychosocially and physically, they they do an amazing job getting through their cancers. A the three year old with leukemia um, is is just it's inspiring to watch, um, and their bodies can just tolerate the 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 to- quite frankly the toxic chemotherapies that we give them. Um, one of the reasons that that leukemia is such a success story, you know, particularly in pediatrics. Um, you know, if you go back 40, 50 years and look at survival rates of, of kids with leukemia, you know, they were down in, you know, 20, 30, 40% survival. And now we're, we're pushing 90, 95%. We actually have studies now in the, in the studies. We're not increasing doses, but we're seeing how low we can go on these doses of chemotherapy and, 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 still, uh, fight these cancers off with, without, you know, significant side effects. One of the reasons that, that we were able to do that was because um, consortiums were formed. So so back in the early 80s, you know, we started to get these these consortiums of of children's hospitals and, and universities that were all working together on the same trials. And because leukemia is the most common uh, cancer in pediatrics, they were able to accrue large amounts of patients and really move these trials forward through collaboration and enrollment. Um, and that's where the success came. It was simply in, ha- in in having the number of patients to get the data that was needed to understand the disease process and treat it. and and so it's it's absolutely multifactorial and 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 again, i I, I, I you know, put this on the biology, the ability to, to accrue to trials. Um, and again, what you mentioned about that ad- adherence component, you know, being adolescents and young adults, these are are people that want to live their lives. They don't want to be burdened with frequent visits to the hospital. They have plenty of reason to forget their, their chemotherapies. Whereas, you know, a child has a parent watching over them. The, ch- the parent's number one priority is that child. And I think we take care of our children better than we take care of ourselves. Mm.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that period, right? That that adolescent period, there's so much else going on in your life, right? It, it, it you know, you're you're becoming an adult. You have a, a social circle. You know, this is a time when you're thinking about college and driving a car and doing all of the things that are exciting and interesting in life and um cancer just isn't supposed to be part of that uh, that, that period in your history that you've got better things to be doing. Talk a little bit about how, you know, adolescents and young adults kind of face that diagnosis. I can only imagine that I, I too would be kind of like, you know what, I just don't have time for this diagnosis at the moment. I've got better things to do.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. So you you know, I I I view adolescence in and of itself its own pathology. I mean, it is such a difficult time emotionally, um, in in and and developmentally. You know, I I think that what is a normal adolescent supposed to do? They're supposed to be figuring out who they are and where they belong. And they're supposed to be worried about, you know, frankly, the mundane, you know, what's going on in social media? How many likes are they getting? Um, What are their friends up to? And you throw a cancer diagnosis into this, and I think a, a, a lot of different things happen. You know, one, I think a lot of times we see our patients identify as now the cancer kid, right? That it takes over their identity. Um, and so you end up with these adjustment disorders, not only at diagnosis, but once treatment's done, once treatment's done, it's kind of like, well, who am I now? You know, I, I I was was the kid with cancer and who am I now? So, so you've got that identity component. And then you've got the component of just an inability to relate to their peers, right? I, I've had so many patients um, who... You know, they come out of this with out of, out of the treatment with such wisdom and 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 such a uh, mature outlook on life and the world that during treatment and then after it, they just can't relate to their peers. You know, they they look at what their peers are worried about and they are just you know, it, it, it angers them sometimes, and and so this results in them really seeking out um, other. Peers, other adolescents, and young adults with cancer, um, and 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 so there there are a lot of things going on during during adolescence, you know, mentally and developmentally, and uh, you know this just makes it that much more difficult.
1: So you know that's a really interesting concept, and you know it goes back to something you said at the top of the show, which is. You know, we really need to support this particular population through a cancer diagnosis. And, and I can only imagine that kids who have had this experience seek out others who uh, have a similar experience as part of their social circle. And that likely can yield some of that social support. But before we get to that, uh, we do need to take a quick break for a medical minute, so please stay tuned to learn more about the use of XR in adolescent and young oncology supportive care with my guest, Dr.
0: Asher Marks. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital where their Prostate and Urologic Cancers Program comprises a multi-specialty team dedicated to managing the diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment of urologic cancer. Smilocancerhospital.org The American Cancer Society estimates that more than 65,000 Americans will be diagnosed with head and neck cancer this year, making up about 4% of all cancers diagnosed. When detected early, however, head and neck cancers are easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers. Yale Cancer Center was recently awarded grants from the National Institutes of Health to fund the Yale Head and Neck Cancer Specialized Program of Research Excellence or spore to address critical barriers to treatment of head and neck squamous cell carcinoma due to resistance to immune DNA damaging and targeted therapy. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Asher Marks. We're discussing the use of XR, or extended reality, in adolescent and young adult oncology supportive care. And right before the break, Asher, we were talking about the fact that this is a unique population of cancer patients, right? Um, Because adolescents in and of themselves have a lot of unique experiences during that time of life. Talk a little bit more about what's important to consider in terms of their supportive care. You were mentioning that many of these patients, because it's having a cancer diagnosis um, at that age is an incredibly maturing experience. In other words, you know, this isn't your usual frivolous um, kind of activity of how many likes do I have, for example, as you mentioned? Um, but more so, you know, how do you how do you look at life and what's important and what's not? and and that can really cause um, adolescents with cancers to seek out other patients who have had similar experiences. so so talk a little bit about that and and other things that are important in terms of s- supporting this particular cancer population
2: sure absolutely so 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 yeah as as you mentioned you know it's this population frequently asked to 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 connect to 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 find other patients in similar situations patients who are in a similar stage of life dealing with a cancer diagnosis and so you know one of the first things that we did when we when we formed this program well one one was 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 hire the right uh, support staff, you know. Um, and when I say support staff, I mean, frankly, highly trained psychologists and psych- psychiatrists to help us with this. Um, one of our first hires was Amanda Garbatini, who is a, a, I think, we're now a five time cancer survivor herself, who's very open with her diagnosis and her history and, and is. Remarkable at connecting with our patients, so we got her on board, and quite frankly, she is still the heart and soul of of, of this program. What she wanted to do was get support groups together because this, this this is what the patients were asking for, you know. And you know, me being a bit naive, I thought this was going to be easy. You know, we we would say, you know, the support group is at this time, this night, um, in this location, in the hospital. And we found that you know nobody showed up, literally nobody, um, despite saying that they wanted these groups um, and that they wanted to come, they didn't show up. And in talking to them, it became very clear that they wanted the connections, but they didn't want to be in the hospital. They didn't want to interfere with their lives. Um, they didn't necessarily want to be in person. They didn't feel good in their bodies where they were. You know, They, they were balding. Many of them were skinny, um, uh, mal- malnourished. Um, so, so th- there was a, a lot going on with them. They wanted this, but but the situations that were being offered really did not fit in, in their lifestyle and their needs. And that's when we started kind of looking at at uh, digital interventions, ways to do this in, in unique ways that might excite them. Um, you know, going on, on to kind of other things that that they had been using for support. You know, I, I I am big on looking at digital technologies as supportive care, and and so there are some very strong um, groups online uh, on facebook on twitter on, on other uh, social media um, uh, platforms um, where these patients we found have actually been found finding a lot of help and support and i think we're very quick to judge social media i think it's done a lot of harm but in, in this specific population it was clear that this is where they were finding support and this is where they were finding people like them and, and finding a way to feel less lonely um, and and kind of less out of the loop, and and more that they were able to find a place um, that they belong.
1: So, so talk a little bit more about what you did in terms of um, using uh, things like extended reality and and digital technology to help um, these populations.
2: Sure, you know you've got to kind of look at when when this also. All kind of went down we were we were in a, i think it was about 2018 and and where virtual reality was at that time was a place where um for any type of experience it, it would require you know a very powerful desktop pc along with about four cameras a wired headset and, and some hand controls um but what was clear was that the technology was starting to take off the adoption rates were increasing um companies had in their in their uh uh kind of plans to, to release lower price headsets that, that were standalone so you did not need a large computer did not need frankly a ton of money and they were very portable and that got us thinking, you know, we talked to our patients, and it was clear that um, a simple teleconference wasn't quite going to do it. Zoom, you know, this was, as, as COVID was starting to get, get going, Zoom be- very much became a tool of their parents, so it wasn't very appealing. And again, they didn't want to show their, their true faces all the time. So this became very appealing. So we, you know, put together an IRB, um, kind of knowing the technology that was coming before it was even available. We we got this going. We went through the process of of scientific review committees and and human protection committees to make sure that we were doing this right. And we learned a lot. You know, we we started with a a protocol that was about six pages. By the time we were done, we we're at about thirty. You know, making sure we we had. Uh, you know, safety protocols in place and, and appendices explaining troubleshooting and things like that. Um, So, so it was more work than expected, but by the time we were done, we were ready to launch this program where we had uh, Amanda, um, uh, sit with a headset on from her office. We had patients with their headsets at home or in the hospital, which was was a remarkable opportunity. Um, and they would then sign in and they would find themselves in a room together, a virtual room that was modeled after our adolescent young adult uh, teen center. Um, and they would sit in a circle and Amanda would run a support group. And um, and it's it's been a phenomenal experience. The pilot's complete. We move this on to the adult populations in GI and breast cancer, um, and even our gender clinic on the, on the gender clinic on our pediatric side. Um, that is really benefiting from this from the concept of avatars, you know a visual representation of the participant being visualized and seeing the way that they feel as their authentic selves. so um it's it's been a great experience and and our, our patients have enjoyed it, and we're looking to continue to to grow it and expand.
1: yeah, I mean it really sounds innovative and and something that I think not only would patients in this group enjoy meeting, uh people who are like them who have had similar experiences while still being behind the shield of an avatar but it also is kind of cool uh, which are the kinds of experiences that um, adolescents and young adults um, I I would think th- would would kind of veer towards um, uh, in terms of being uh, more high tech. And yet you were still able to provide kind of the, the supervision um, or somebody to moderate uh, the support group, which I think is the other issue that people might have some trepidation about when you find people on Facebook. Uh, you know, the quality of the information, especially now that we've been through a pandemic and, and various other uh, events where there's been a lot of disinformation being disseminated. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And if you've used the other platforms like Facebook and Twitter and, and uh, you know, all of the rest of them, Instagram, TikTok, whatever, um, have you found that there's a lot of misinformation or disinformation and, and how do you get around that?
2: Yeah, you hit the nail right in the head. There is so much disinformation out there, and that's what always gave us pause about. Um, for one, advocating for you know the use of social media in, in these situations, um, and and for two, you know how, how do you how do we approach the patients when they come to us with this information? Um, you know, social media tends to pull people in at an emotional level. And when they get pulled in at an emotional level, they they then begin to trust the sources that they've become emotionally attached to. And, and so it's really hard for you as a physician to try to shoot down that information if you don't have that patient's trust. And, and so I, I think it's very important for us as, as practitioners to gain a patient's trust before trying to you know, impart on them, you know, information that, that may be at odds with what they're finding online. Um, so, so I encourage finding communities that are, that are, that patients connect with, um, with a caveat that you may hear some information out there that it's, that is, you know, frankly wrong and harmful. Um, and so it's an absolute challenge. There are other platforms out there um, for patients to meet, you know, in avatar form. Um, but it's it's without moderation. Um, it is without HIPAA compliance. And and that was a, a big um focus of getting our software together. We worked with a company called Fortel um uh, Re- uh Fortel, I think it's Fortel Reality now, out of New York. Um and and they understood what we needed and and we had very specific demands as as to what we wanted you know we did not want something where anyone could walk in it needed to be very controlled from from participants to environment um, and, and, and so, so I think kind of going back to the question, you know, what we've done in, in, in our intervention is make sure that we have control over every aspect of it. Um, but again, patients are going to go out there. They're, they're going to be looking on social media to find answers. And again, it's important for, for them to trust us as the practitioners and to acknowledge that that information's out there and try to help them work their way through it. Instead of just saying, that's bad information. Listen to me.
1: Yeah. You know, but it does bring up the issue of access, right? Um, you know, first of all, while you, you had mentioned that the cost of, uh, the headsets has, uh, has gone down dramatically, I can imagine that there are some underprivileged kids out there who, uh, don't have the funds to come up with that headset. Some of them don't have the funds to to get a good meal together, um, and and so how how do you kind of work around that? I, I mean, um, or is this just one of those extra layers that it's it's really nice if you have money and not so nice if you don't? And that's just the way the society that we live in. I mean, is yeah. that
2: where we're at. Well, yeah, we, we refuse to date that attitude. (laughs) So, so we, we've been working very hard, um, with, you know, different organizations, uh, industry, uh, governments, um, philanthropic. Um, and so we're, we're lucky, you know, quite frankly, we're, we're lucky that we, we right now have 150 headsets that have been donated, um, you know that we are able to to give to patients to use to, during this intervention, um, and and frankly, from from an, a accessibility perspective, I think one of my big concerns is we can give out the headsets. What we can't do is is give out reliable, dependable internet. Um, and and you know if you look at the patients that do worse over time, it's those patients that actually live far away from a major cancer center, and those are often the places that do, don't necessarily have re- reliable internet. You know, our hope is that you know the five G push will will help with that, um, and there are definitely some um, uh, acts of Congress kind of going through not only within Connecticut but at the national level to to really define broadband as as a utility, which which I think it needs to be at this point. Um, and, and, and so, you know, in, in summary, we've been lucky, we, we've been able to get these headsets out to, to the patients that need them. Um, and, and we're hoping right now that, that kind of the, the overall infra infrastructure is, as 5G becomes more reliable and, and more um, available and, and quite frankly, affordable. Um, we're hoping that, that that'll change. Um, because the, the patients that are most at need are, are the ones who often have trouble accessing um, these, these
0: uh, technologies. Dr. Asher Marks is an associate professor of pediatrics at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is Yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.